0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston.
1: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost.
0: It is Thursday, November 1st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Biotech stocks had a
2: horrible, terrible, no good, very bad month. We'll put the 31 days of October in historical context and help you make sense of what could come next.
1: Precision medicine is billed as the next frontier of healthcare, but what happens when insurers won't pay for it? Liz Sabo, as senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, joins us to talk about her reporting on the financial toxicity that patients face for pricey tests and targeted treatments.
0: Then we're going to take a break from biotech and talk about a health issue that doesn't get enough discussion. The depression and anxiety that so many new mothers face after giving birth. Alyssa Ambrose, STAT's Deputy Multimedia Director, joins us to talk about her own postpartum experience.
1: And finally, we're going to bring you another lightning round. That means hot takes on pharmaceutical tourism to Mexico, the latest biopharma prison sentencing, and some questionable calls from Celgene CEOs both new and old.
2: But first, a word about STAT+. Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to STAT Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener.
1: So October is over now, and it was a horrible month for biotech. Adam, how bad was it?
2: Yeah, Rebecca, uh, it was pretty bad. <laughs> I had Chris Raymond and his associate, Allison Bratzel, at Piper Jaffray crunch some numbers for me, and I appreciate their help. You know, there's two major indices that, that investors look at in biotech, and, and they were down 15% and 18%. Uh, respectively, in the month of October. Uh, and that is the worst one-month performance
0: since January of 2016. Now, wasn't the market down across the board? Like, is this a, a macro phenomenon or is it specific to biotech?
2: Yeah, Damien, you know, the market was down overall. Uh, you know, the S&P 500 was down 7% for the month of October. So, you know, it, it's, this is more of a macro thing, but clearly biotech took it on the chin.
1: So is there a reason for how bad things are with biotech stocks? Did something happen?
0: That's what was kind of fascinating to me and perhaps most alarming to people whose actual money is at stake. No, or at least not so far as I can discern. Going back to January 2016, which Adam mentioned before, that was the height of a lot of fear and and arguably paranoia about the coming election and controls on drug pricing that might be happening and rhetoric from Hillary Clinton, who was presumed to be the next president of the United States. And that really drove stocks down. So at least there you could pinpoint some sort of causality. The issue with October is, as far as I can tell, it was kind of just like a folly à deux between investors and their money.
1: What does that word mean, Damien.
0: So in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that I learned this from an X-Files episode uh, and not any any kind of academic source. But if I recall correctly, it's a sort of shared break from reality between two parties. All right, Professor Damian, let's get back on topic.
1: OK, so how about individual biotech stocks? Who are the biggest winners and losers this month?
2: So as you would expect, with the indices down as much as they are, I did a quick screen and I looked at biotech and drug stocks with market caps greater than $300 million market caps. And of those stocks, were red in October. So the losses were spread far and wide. Celgene was down 22% in October. That's huge. You know, Bristol-Myers Squibb, right, major pharma company, down 20% in October. Vertex, which had been kind of a high flyer for most of the year on their cystic fibrosis drug franchise, they were down 12% in October. You know, if you were looking for some optimism or like some sort of bright spot, Merck was up 3% in October. It was one of the few stocks that actually
0: outperformed in the month.
1: Even that 3% being a bright spot, that is a rough month.
0: Yes, very. And one thing that's interesting, you've probably heard that 2018 is on pace to be a near record month for biotech IPOs. And that remains true. But I have a spreadsheet that charts the performance of 2018's biotech IPOs. And I've been watching just throughout the month of October as the numbers gradually get smaller and smaller and smaller and then turn negative. And so... We remain on pace for that near record, but as of last month, I suppose, more biotech IPOs in 2018 are returning negative returns for people who bought them than positive returns. And so that kind of raises the question as to whether this near record pace can keep up if people are losing money.
2: And Damien, this week we had a pretty closely watched IPO of a biotech unicorn, right?
0: That's true. So there's a company called Orchard Therapeutics, which people may know because they have uh, inherited GlaxoSmithKline's former gene therapy pipeline, which includes a much-written-about gene therapy for what is known as bubble boy disease. Anyway, they went public this week, and there was a lot of fanfare going into that. And interestingly, they priced their offering at the low end of the range. And then in their first day of trading, they were mostly underwater before there was sort of a uh, miraculous rally, probably by their underwriters, to get them back to exactly the point at which they priced. So, you know. All is not lost for them, but that's not the kind of performance I think that people are looking as a bullish signal going forward.
1: Okay, so speaking of going forward, October's over, it's a new month, we've turned the literal page on the calendar. In the interest of looking in the crystal ball, are there signs that things might get better?
2: Well, I mean, if you you look at the fundamentals of the sector the science. I mean, all that stuff seems to be going as planned. I mean, you know, the science underlining biotech drug development marches forward. You know, obviously not everything is going to work. But I mean, we're still seeing kind of really major breakthroughs in new medicines and that hasn't stopped. So, I mean, if you're sort of bullish long term on the ability of biotech and drug companies to kind of create new medicines, then there's probably the stock market fluctuation that we're seeing in October might be just a blip.
1: How about the flip side, though? Are there signs that the bad month of October may bleed into November and beyond?
0: Yes. In fact, there's there's data to back this up. 2018 has been marked by, as we mentioned, a lot of IPOs and also a lot of follow-on financings by companies that are already public. And the analysts at Leerink dug into the 20-year history of boom and bust cycles, and what they discovered was that whenever IPOs are hot and follow-ons are really, really going, it's actually negative for long-term returns, in part because the more money that's flowing into something, the more bad ideas get funded and those eventually blow up. So it's very possible that until there's a correction that levels the playing field, returns on actual investments are going to stay negative.
1: Well, fortunately, as Guns N' Roses famously sings, nothing lasts forever.
0: These days, it's hard to find a more prevalent buzzword than precision medicine. The concept has generated a huge amount of excitement, including the government's precision medicine initiative and big investments by drug companies.
1: One reason the idea has caught on is because it makes intuitive sense and sounds so futuristic. Who doesn't want to tailor treatments to patients based on the genetic drivers of their disease?
0: But there's at least one problem with that narrative. The promise of precision medicine may be being oversold bringing more uncertain benefits and greater costs than many people realize.
1: Liz Sabo is a senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and she's been doing some sobering reporting on this subject. Just the other day, she put out a new piece, published in USA Today, that examines what happens when insurers won't pay for precision medicine.
0: And Liz joins us today to talk about her story. Liz, thanks for coming on the show.
3: Great to be here.
1: Liz, your piece follows the story of a woman in South Dakota named Kristen Kilmer, who was diagnosed with incurable breast cancer. Could you tell us more about her personal experience with precision medicine?
3: Sure. She decided that she didn't want to go for standard chemotherapy. She wanted to try to think out of the box and do something experimental, sort of a a big gamble to see if she could get more time with her little girl. Now, the studies that I've seen when they look at precision medicine for unproven applications like breast cancer, I mean, the the results are not great. When someone has really advanced cancer, you know, maybe under 10% get any benefit. We're not talking longer life, just you know, any benefit at all. But she is one of the rare cases where um, she's done really well. I mean, we don't know for sure the precision medicine is what's helping her. Maybe her cancer is just slow growing, but she's she's done extremely well. And when doctors scanned her, they can find no evidence of her cancer anymore, which is just an extraordinary result.
0: And so while there was, as you mentioned, that very strong clinical result, the financial realities of this story were you know, kind of a story unto themselves, right?
3: Absolutely. There's been a lot of reporting about these handful of patients who do well. But I decided to write this piece because what you don't see is how much it costs. In certain types of cancer, like lung cancer, precision medicine has been really well established, so there's usually pretty good insurance coverage for it. But for something like breast cancer, it's really still experimental. And private insurance, for the most part, does not cover the test. I interviewed one woman who got a $5,800 bill uh, just for the test alone. And then the problem is, even if your insurance, like Medicare, for example, will pay for the test now, they won't necessarily pay for the treatments because the treatments are considered experimental. These tests may match you with a drug that's FDA approved, but it's not FDA approved for your cancer. It's approved for some other cancer. And legally, you can get it. That's called an off-label prescription but insurance won't pay for it. And trying to pay for these drugs on their own is just a monstrously difficult task.
1: And so, Liz, when insurers refuse to pay for these treatments or tests, what is the rationale that they give?
3: Well, they say there's just no evidence, and they make a valid point. I mean, it's a heartbreaking point if you're the one who's refused coverage But, you know, there's really no evidence that for someone who has breast cancer, for example, that these tests are going to help or that the drugs are going to work. The drug that this patient in my story was matched to is approved for breast cancer, but only for women with mutations in a a gene called BRCA. It's not approved for someone with any of the mutations that she has. So there's really no evidence. There have been no studies showing that it would help her. So the insurance companies, I guess from their perspective, why should we throw money away on something that we don't know is going to help you and could even hurt you? That's their rationale.
0: So getting back to the case of of Kristen Kilmer and, and her particular experience with precision medicine, in this instance, your reporting had an impact on, on how that played out, right?
3: That's right. I mean, this is a woman with a, a modest income. Her husband is a, a truck driver. They have one little girl. So, what they did when she wanted this medication was to apply for financial assistance from the drug company. And um, until recently, the drug companies were pretty generous, but this woman had a tiny little blip in her income, and the drug company decided that she was no longer eligible. And they turned her down twice. So. This woman was looking at having to pay for the drug out of pocket, which would be almost $17,000 a month. Now she's already spent $80,000 out of pocket over the years, you know, kind of wiping out her savings, going into credit card debt. And she said, you know, basically, you know, if, if I have to leave my child in debt and never go to college, Just to get a few more months or a few more years, she thought, I'm not going to do it. And then after our story came out, within hours, they called her and said they were FedExing her the drug free of charge.
1: Well, that's a a great outcome to hear for her. But, of course, that doesn't solve the problem for other
3: patients who are struggling here. Absolutely. There are half a million patients a year diagnosed with uh, metastatic cancer. I mean, it's great for Kristen, but these other patients are still going to be struggling.
1: And so, Liz, your reporting describes what sounds like a really broken system. Did you identify any ways to make precision medicine work better for patients? Well,
3: it's a tough debate because uh, some people say, well, we should have uh, insurance coverage for all of this. Well, you know, insurance coverage would solve the problem for individual patients. But the problem is the more that insurance covers and if the cost of the drugs keeps going up, then that's gonna raise your premiums and everyone's gonna end up paying. One academic has said that because precision medicine in most cases is still experimental, it should really be free. You know, when you're in a clinical trial, you normally get the drugs for free. Medicare has already approved uh, these precision medicine tests for for its patients. So trying to get the drug companies or the, the precision medicine testing companies to provide stuff for free is going to be a pretty tough request.
0: And so given all you've learned from your reporting, both in this story and in previous ones, what advice would you give, you know, a cancer patient who is considering trying precision medicine, whether in a clinical trial or an approved therapy?
3: Just try to take a beat to calm down and not make decisions out of desperation. That's easy for me to say. Cancer drugs are routinely approved at costs of more than $100,000 a year. Um, Some drug combinations are $250,000 a year. But I would really look carefully at what their actual results are because precision medicine is hyped pretty strongly. And the fact is when I look at the research studies, the best study had a response rate of 8%. And we're not talking curing 8% of people. We're talking holding the disease at bay for a little bit longer, no proof that it would even give you any extra time. So if you look at a drug and you think, best case scenario, my tumor might not grow for a couple of months longer with this, but I'm not going to live any longer, then that sort of puts the price into perspective. And, you know, do you want to leave your family in debt? Do you want to get a second mortgage on your house if there's really no evidence that this is going to work? So, I, I know that's really easy for me to say, but I just think doctors owe it to their patients. I think journalists owe it to our readers to make sure that people know the limitations of these drugs. Well,
1: it's an important reality check, and we'll look to your reporting for more of that sort of sobering caution was thank you for joining us. Thank you.
0: Later this week, the FDA is gathering a bunch of experts to discuss what would be the first drug developed specifically to treat postpartum depression.
1: The condition affects about 15% of women who've just given birth. That's according to the CDC, and it's a lot more common than a lot of people realize. That's in part because of a persistent stigma attached to postpartum depression and anxiety, and it's something that leaves many mothers suffering in silence.
2: Alyssa Ambrose is Stat's Deputy Director of Multimedia. She's also a mom. She has a four-year-old daughter and then had another baby girl in May. Alyssa wrote about her experience with postpartum depression, and she joins us to talk about her story and the reaction it's received. Alyssa, thanks for joining us.
1: Great to be here. So Alyssa, in your piece, you write really vividly about how you felt in the months after giving birth. You described it as a time marked both by, quote, boundless love, and the darkest kind of sadness, end quote.
4: So what made you want to share your story? It was obviously kind of a scary story to share publicly, but I think the thing that made me feel most passionate about writing the story down was that when I was going through this thing that I now understand to be postpartum depression, I was constantly second-guessing myself and feeling like the feelings I had were probably part of a normal postpartum period. You know, you're exhausted, things are crazy, Uh, I was completely convinced for a long time that I wasn't uh, experiencing anything clinical. I think at that time, I would have found a lot of value in reading other women's stories. And when I did eventually sort of figure out that this wasn't, in fact, normal to feel this way, and I started to talk to other women, it was incredibly eye-opening to hear that so many of them had been through the same thing and that this is, in fact, a physical clinical thing that can happen to your brain. And I wished that I had had more knowledge. And so I, I wrote it in the hope that other women might be able to find some comfort and some information from what I myself went through.
2: Alyssa, well, so one thing that stood out in your piece was the statistic that only about 15% of women struggling with postpartum depression actually get treated. You know, what are the barriers that keep them from getting what they need?
4: I spoke with the president of ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and their feeling is that one of the biggest barriers to care, and this was my experience as well, is a lack of access to clinicians in mental health. And they mentioned that would be helpful probably for women going forward is an integration of obstetric care and psychological care. That barrier of just finding someone to help you is huge. And I also think the barrier of even recognizing that you have a problem is, is the other most major thing because so many women are made to feel like this is normal, that it's normal to feel overwhelmed, it's normal to feel sad. There's so many things in our society that tell women, like, you just have to grin and bear it. So I feel like getting diagnosed or even realizing you have a problem is the first barrier, and then getting help for that is the second.
2: So Alyssa, what has the response been since your piece was published? Have you heard from women, you know, with similar experiences?
4: It's been a really hopeful reaction for me. Um, I've heard from a lot of women, both who have recently uh, had children and who have experienced these symptoms previously, who just overwhelmingly said that this story mirrored a lot of their experience, that they were felt refreshed and relieved to see somebody else acknowledge those feelings. And so I hope that this will be the beginning of a conversation with more to come.
1: If you haven't read Alyssa's essay, I highly recommend doing so by going to Stats website, Alyssa, thanks for coming
4: on the show. Thank you so much, guys.
0: And it is time now once more for the lightning round. So Rebecca, what is with this story about
2: Utah sending patients to Mexico for cheap drugs?
1: So an insurer that covers public employees and their family members is offering a very strange deal to try to drive down drug costs. Uh the uh, the offer is patients can get plane tickets to San Diego, transportation to Tijuana, and then a $500 cash payout so that they can get their drugs across the border. These are drugs for multiple sclerosis, cancer, and certain autoimmune disorders.
0: So that story kind of took flight on Twitter because it sort of begged for like the witty framing of, ah, yes, this is healthcare in America today. But it was kind of interesting to me as a person who grew up in a border state, because this has been pretty common for a while, maybe not as a codified thing from a payer, but my father, for example, owes his entire smile to the dentist of Juarez.
1: That's right. Yeah, this is something, as you pointed out, um, people living near the border in America do all the time. But to see, right, to see it sort of codified by an insurer begs the question of whether we'll see more of this from other insurers trying to cut down on costs.
2: So diehard listeners to this podcast know that we have previously discussed uh, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, and it's kind of dodgy mail-order pharmacy called Philidor. And so this week, we see some closure in this episode, right, uh, Rebecca?
1: That's right. Two of the former executives uh, involved in that scheme ultimately got sentenced. Both of them got one year and one day in prison. So, Damien, how do you think this compares to some of the other sentencing we've seen in recent months in biopharma.
0: So yeah, a year and a day is much smaller, obviously, than the sentence that, for example, Martin Shkreli got. And it's smaller than what is proposed and is likely to befall Elizabeth Holmes and the rest of the merry gang of Theranos folks. But I think, you know what, I've seen people kind of point out that discrepancy. It's it's important to remember that what Valiant is accused of, and now these two men have been convicted of doing, is not really the same kind of fraud. It's actually much more in line with what we saw from Enron or sort of channel stuffing frauds of yesteryear. So a one-to-one comparison is not really possible.
1: So moving on, let's talk about a comment that the CEO of Celgene made at a, a recent conference. That's Mark Alice. Uh, he is the head of biotech company Celgene, and he made an interesting comment about what's actually hard in drug development. He said that the main challenge these days is the financial burden that patients are facing. By contrast, he said, actually treating the disease, quote, is becoming ironically easy, end quote. So what do we think? Is that a gaffe?
2: I think it's one of those comments that he probably... Would retract if he thought about it again. And I also note, I think it's funny, is that Mark was speaking at a biotech conference in Bellevue, Washington, and Celgene bought a CAR T company called Genotherapeutics, which is based in Seattle, and they haven't actually gotten a drug approved yet. So he might want to just kind of think about that statement again.
0: Well, and I think it's doubly painful upon review, just because. If you actually have cancer, you might balk at the idea that a man who makes millions of dollars describes caring for your disease as, quote, ironically easy. And then furthermore, his underlining the fact that the difficult part is patients' ability to pay for it. Well, he happens to market a drug in the form of Revlimid, which if you live in the greater New Jersey area, you know Celgene has raised the price of. So the guy behind the price increases telling you that affordability is a problem feels a little rich.
1: So on a related note, Damien, you were saying you were just watching Jeopardy the other night and saw an interesting TV ad.
0: Wait, Damien, you watch Jeopardy? Almost every night, yes, that and the X-Files. So yeah, I live in the greater New Jersey television market, which means that I have been treated for weeks to the televisual communications of Bob Hugan and Bob Menendez, two men who are running for the Senate, and of course, Bob Hugan, former CEO of Celgene. And now, because we are days away from the election, the rhetoric, as it often does, has ratcheted up. And there is a new ad, endorsed by Bob Hugen, that implicitly compares his opponent to Harvey Weinstein.
1: Yeah, this ad is something else. So the spot features a mother and her baby girl. Uh, later, there's a cameo of their fluffy white dog, just to give you a sense of the tone. And this woman is watching the TV news. And we see in the background Harvey Weinstein on the screen, charged with rape, is splattered across the chiron. And just after that in the ad, this mother mentions allegations that Bob Menendez may have traveled abroad to have sex with underage prostitutes. And to just give you a flavor for that ad, here's what the New Jersey mother has to say about what she'd tell her daughter about Bob Menendez.
4: I'll never be able to explain a vote for him to
2: her. Well, already then, yeah, late season political ads are certainly something. You know, the New York Times did fact check this ad. And to summarize it, they said that these allegations against Menendez had never been proven. So Damien has been watching the Huguen-Menendez race pretty closely. And, um, you know, by the time our next podcast comes around, uh, the election results will be known. So, Rebecca, do you think that we should ask Damien for a prediction?
1: You know, I think we should, Damien. Let's put on your pundit hat.
0: <laughs> I defer to the sort of floating brains in jars that uh, work at 538 who accumulated all of the polling in this race. None of the polls actually have Hugin winning. And I think it's fair to say from that that it seems very unlikely, even accounting for the error bars in polling, that he can pull off this upset. But also, my pundit hat doesn't even fit, and I have no idea. We're putting you down for Menendez then. Fine.
1: That does it for another episode.
0: Thank you to Hyacinth Adminado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer. And
2: as always, Rick Burke is our executive producer.
0: And a reminder that we would love to hear from you. You can tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you don't like, and what we ought to talk about next time. You can send an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. We read them and appreciate them. So thank you. See you next week.